0: All right, I know it's still a little tight in here. I've been told this is the last Sunday that we have this set up. So, uh, so we're, we're, we're waiting uh, upon the Lord to give us a little more elbow room uh, beginning next Sunday, which would be great. By the way, how do you feel about waiting for things? <laughs> Everybody gives a nervous giggle with that. A moment of pastoral transparency, I despise waiting in lines. Despite, I mean, you can ask Tanya about this. In most cases, if I see a line, I will just move on. I, I just, I cannot stand waiting in a line. And even in those rare cases where I want to go somewhere and I know there will always be a line, like in and out still I have my limits on how many cars I will get behind. I mean, I'll just keep going and, and eat a jack-in-the-box if I have to. Oh. I, that, got, that got a bit of a groan from the audience. I mean, at least there's nobody in line there. I hate waiting. The worst waiting, I think, is at the doctor's office. I still haven't figured out the system of, of how it works. You sign your name on the little clipboard. Every office has that clipboard, right? But then the way the, they come out and get you and call your name, I haven't figured that out yet. The doctor always insists that you're on time, but every single time I go, he's running late. And he's backed up, but they still insist that I be there on time. Of course, the DMV is the worst, right? Pretty atrocious, all that that noise, that chaos, that confusion. And heaven forbid you get in the wrong line at the DMV because they will put you at the back of the right line, won't they? There's no grace there. There's the TSA line at the airport, especially if you're running late, if you don't allow for like the 45 minutes it takes to get just into the beginning of LAX to... United Airlines at Terminal 6, 45 minutes these days. It's, it's insane. So you're running late and then you get to the TSA line and you can't even see the front of the line. It's the worst. Or the simple cup of coffee that you need to get quickly. So you, you pop in there and you realize 10 other people had the exact same thought. And now you're waiting for your coffee. Now, those are just the little inconveniences of life. And we all learn how to hopefully deal with those patiently but then there are the really serious times of waiting that some of us have endured over the years or some of us will at some point in life have to endure in the future things like the the single person who is waiting for that future spouse to come along that's hard the childless couple who is trying and trying and trying and waiting to get pregnant the person who's stuck in their job that they hate and they're out there looking and looking and waiting for a better and more meaningful opportunity. The person who's dealing with a chronic illness and they're waiting for the Lord to help them get better. The spouse that's in a hurting marriage, waiting for things to improve. We all go through various types of trials and various measures of suffering. And oftentimes those times of trials and suffering hit us the hardest when we're forced to wait upon the Lord for relief. As I shared last week, trials of waiting can cause us to doubt that God is with us still. It can cause us to doubt God's goodness. It can raise questions in our heart like, Lord, why are you not responding right now? Are you mad at me? We ask that question. Are you mad at me? Do you not care that I'm in pain? Why the silence? And we saw last Sunday how Mary and Martha were dealing with this exact same thing. They're watching their brother die from this sickness. And so they reach out to the one person they know can help them. And nothing. They hear nothing. No response. And I shared last week that at least for me, one of the hardest things in the Christian life is this. Put it on the screen. How to feel when God doesn't respond how I expect him to. How do I process that? I've been taught that God responds to us in certain ways, and then what? It doesn't happen. How am I to feel about that? How am I to to work through that? How do I wait to get answers? So we talked about our need to turn the question From why is this happening? Why is this happening to what can I learn from it? Or how might God be working in this? Is this suffering going to put His glory on display in a more prominent way? Is this suffering meant to stretch me and build me up and grow me? Or is it for the good of somebody around me? Is my suffering good for somebody in my family or in my church family? It's all about making this intentional shift From the why is this happening to me, which often drives us into self-pity and despair, to what and how. The what and how questions, both of them help us to lift our eyes right off our circumstances and to fix them on Jesus in the midst of the storm. And the reason why this is so important is because it aligns our thinking with some very important and key truths about God. Number one, that he always hears the cries of his children. Always. Number two, that he will never leave us. And never forsake us. And number three, that he's always sovereignly at work, doing far more than we can see or we can know. So grab your Bibles. Let's keep going in our story in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, today's passage is officially verses 9 through 16. We're going to back up a little bit of overlap today. We're going to back up all the way to the beginning of the chapter and read verses 1 through 16 together. And this is going to set us up really nicely for one of the most beautiful declarations that Jesus makes in the entire New Testament. We'll look at it next week when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that will in turn set us up well for the following Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, which I've heard is about resurrection. So this will fit nicely. All right, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. No map today. I showed you where Bethany was last week. That's all you get. (laughs) Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then John tells us which Mary, because there's so many of them, right? Which Mary are we talking about? Verse 2, it was the Mary who who anointed the Lord with ointment or perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Very simple, right? Doesn't, they don't tell Jesus what he has to do. I mean, it's implied here, but they don't instruct the Lord. Verse 4, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that was the statement that really rocked us last Sunday, right? We looked at this and we said, wait, hold on a second. Jesus loved this family, therefore he delayed going to them. That's just not the way our human minds work, right? If you love them, Jesus, you should rush to their aid. If you love them, Jesus, you should heal Lazarus from this illness. At the very least, get there and provide comfort to Mary and Martha in their time of need. But the Lord knew what Lazarus and Mary and Martha couldn't possibly know. Because He's God, He knows the outcome. And He knows what they need most of all, and it's actually greater than being healed. And it's greater than just having His presence, His comfort. Jesus knows this. Verse 7, now the story shifts away from that family in Bethany to the second group of believers in the story. Then after this, He said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? So the disciples' problem is different from Mary and Martha's, but there is a similarity. They are confounded by Jesus' plan to go back to Judea. They're confounded by the way he responds to this request from Mary and Martha. They just can't understand why he would even consider going back to the place that they've just recently escaped from. And they don't want to go on a suicide mission. It's just too much to ask rabbi so get this now jesus is being pulled right one group of believers is saying hurry come back to us and the other is saying absolutely not do not go so how's jesus going to respond verse 9 jesus answered are there not 12 hours in the day if anyone walks in the day he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world but if anyone walks in the night he stumbles because the light is not in him this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. We'll get to that next week. It's very, very funny. He'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Hey, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad Underline that word. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So off they go to Judea, right back toward the mouth of the beast. And we know where this ends up, right? It ends up at the cross. Now, we'll deal with the question surrounding Thomas's declaration next Sunday. When he says, let's go die with him, the question is, was he being super courageous? Was he putting on his superhero costume here? Or was he just being an Eeyore and saying, I eh, guess we're going to die? <laughs> For today, I want to focus on two themes that come out of this part of the story. And at first glance, they, they seem like they're themes that contradict each other. One is waiting on the Lord, and the other is making the most of your time. You catch that waiting on the Lord, making the most of your time. Can those two things coexist? Now, you probably know the Bible's filled with all kinds of instructions to wait upon the Lord. I'll give you just a few of my favorites Psalm 27 wait for the Lord, be strong, be strong, and let your heart take courage while you wait, right? Yes, wait for the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3 the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Micah chapter 7. But as for me, I watch expectantly for the Lord. I wait for the God of my salvation. You'll find these, these types of exhortations all over the Bible. Now let's be honest, as modern day Americans, we're not great at this. We're not great at waiting. And the truth is we're not conditioned for it because we don't have to wait for much in our culture today. We have so much and everything that we want, we, we can get very quickly and very easily. I mean, it's one of the great things about our, the time we live in, but also one of the drawbacks, the things that you can order today with a click of a button and have delivered to your door is ridiculous. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I can go online to Amazon and with a simple click of a button in a single day have delivered to my doorstep baguette slippers. I mean, what a time to live. I can get bacon-scented soap Or a Godzilla themed garden gnome (laughs) statue in a day brought to my doorstep. So, honestly, how can we possibly be conditioned to wait for anything when everything seems to be at our fingertips with a click? Think about that. We're like the person who tries to go out and play a sport, but they have not spent one moment conditioning. So, when they finally do get on the playing field, they're suffering. They just can't do it because they're not conditioned, and then we're impulsive too. When we want something, we want it now. That's what the culture has taught us, and you know what we're like. And if you're a parent, you understand this. We're like we're like children because kids don't want to wait. They want everything when now. now. I hate to admit that that we're all like this. Even old guys like myself, the culture has affected me. It was much. I mean, it wasn't nearly so hard fifty years ago. But even I've been conditioned by this culture, and it's, it's much harder now. It's easy to buy into the falsehood that God is our buddy in the sky who's somehow obligated to, to meet our every request and, and respond to everything that we want. But listen, no good parent does that, right? Well, we know that principle in our head that no good parent just says yes to everything, but we often don't apply it to ourselves. The reality is, as with Mary and Martha in our story, many times God expresses His love for us Not in responding right away, but in delaying his response, requiring us to wait. Sometimes it's a no. That's really hard. sometimes it's not a denial, it's just a delay. It's you must wait for this, right? So as I shared, I'll get those pictures off the screen because that's super distracting. As I shared last Sunday, if God chooses to delay in his response to you, his motivation for that is love. That's what we really need to grasp hold of. The motivation is love. Even if it means you must go through an extended time of pain or suffering. It's still love. And you should know this too. Waiting is not a sign that your world is out of control. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a sign that your world is under the attentive control of a God who is both infinitely good and wise and knows what you need most. That's an article of faith, is it not? To know that God is infinitely wise. He knows all of the contingencies and possibilities that you don't know. And He's infinitely good. And that He loves His children. So we can have peace as we wait. Again, not because we like to wait. We don't. None of us do. But because we can trust the One who is requiring us to wait. Amen? Now, here's the one thing we often miss when we talk about waiting. Waiting upon the Lord is not an excuse to be spiritually lazy. We often think it is. It's not a reason to say, well, okay, I'll wait upon the Lord. There's nothing I can do, so I'll just go back to Netflix and my video game. That, that's not the point. We tend to think of waiting as meaningless. It's a waste of time, but nothing could be further from the truth. Not biblically, right? Waiting on God is to be an active time. Waiting on God is to be purposeful and sanctifying. In fact, I would go so far as to say that waiting is one of God's most powerful tools of grace in our lives. One of the most powerful tools. Understood correctly, the wait itself is a gift of grace. Now, we don't like that, but it is a gift of grace in your life. Why do I say that? Because in requiring us to wait, God is doing a purging in our lives. He's helping us to die to ourselves in so many ways, to die to our own plans, to die to our own wisdom, to die to our desire to control everything around us. So that means waiting can be a tool that powerfully transforms the heart. If, and this is a big if, if we recognize that need in our lives and if we submit and cooperate to the work the Spirit wants to do in us. Many of us miss this. This is part of my, big, my, my most important point for you this morning is that we sort of understand waiting, but we miss the practical application of it. Because we're not paying attention. We're not recognizing that need. We're not cooperating. We're just grumbling. We're just complaining about the trial that we're going through. So here's an important statement. Waiting is not just about what we get at the end of the wait. It's about who we become in the process of waiting. That's what I mean by purposeful and sanctifying. It's not a time of laziness. It's actually a time of great spiritual activity. So as we enter into the process of waiting, we remember that we're not alone in it. This is important to say again, God hasn't gone anywhere. Even if in your five senses, you're like, I don't sense his presence. He's there, he hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you, still loves you. And he's not singled you out among all of humanity as the only one going through something hard. In fact, you can be sure that you're part of a vast number of redeemed people who are being taught by God through waiting. Many of which will be in this audience this morning because we're all waiting. The waiting process gives us a chance to, to look into God's Word and to see what it says and to read about all the people in the Bible who had to, had to wait. It's everywhere. If you look in the Bible, it's everywhere, right? We read about, for example, how Abraham and Sarah waited for the son of promise, Isaac, to be born. They waited. We look at how Israel waited 400 years to be delivered from slavery in Egypt and then had to wait another 40 years to come into the land that had been promised to them. One of my favorite stories, we read about godly Simeon who waited to the very, very end of his very, very old life to finally see the Messiah. And now the church has been waiting for 2,000 years for him to come back. Even the creation itself groans. Why? It's waiting to be redeemed. Waiting is all over the Scripture. What, are the, what this tells us is that waiting is not an interruption in God's plan for your life. It is God's plan for your life. That we tend to interpret it that way, like, Oh God, I was on this really great track and you've interrupted it by making me wait. No. No, this is actually God's plan to wait. And we can trust that He will sustain us as we wait, that He will give us the ability to bear up under it, to be content, to be hopeful in the midst of waiting. Not easy, by the way, I, you, a lot of these truths are just reinforcing what you know. It's not easy. I'm not saying this is easy at all. I'm just saying this is true. So let these truths see, seep into your heart. If you take this truth seriously, waiting can be a huge spiritual asset in your life. So you can see it as a negative, or you can see it as a huge opportunity. I'm going to give you a whole list of things on the screen while you wait. It will give you the time and opportunity to dwell on all kinds of important things. For example, take the time while you're waiting to remember who you are and who God is. Every day, dwelling on who you once were and who Christ has now declared you to be, justified in His sight, a child of the King. Remembering the forgiveness that you enjoy, while at the same time, while you're waiting, becoming a greater student of your own heart so that you can mortify sin in your life. Wait, we can do that while we're waiting? Absolutely, we should be. Waiting can give you more opportunities to know God better by spending more time in His Word so that you grow in your understanding of His character and His wisdom and His will. Remembering the grace that's been lavished upon you, the salvation that you enjoy right now and what awaits you in the age to come. That's a great opportunity, right? And that means that waiting can be a time of profound worship. Pouring out your heart before your Savior. Savior. Going deeper in your devotion to Him in the midst of difficulty. Waiting ought to lead to a profound and extended time of prayer in your life as well. Being fully honest before the One who is sovereign over your days, right? Even as you flood His, His, His throne of grace with your tears and with your requests, as you wait, and, and you should do that. You know you can be fully honest with God, right? Even as you're struggling, you're in pain, you're grieving, whatever this time of trial is, flood his his throne of grace with your tears and with your requests. That's great. That's fine. That's fine. And then wait for him. Waiting can be a great time to turn away from self-centeredness and to seek to serve others. This is a hard one. Focusing your attention not on navel-gazing but on being a blessing to those around you, especially in your church family. Because when we're going through hard times and we're forced to wait, oftentimes we get very turned inward, don't we? But this is a time to look outward and to serve others. Because, I mean, how many times everybody in this room can probably testify to this truth, that at a time of despair, you took an opportunity to serve somebody else and it brought you great joy, didn't it? It brings great joy to serve others. And finally, waiting should be a good time just to recall the goodness of God in your life. And again, I know that's hard in a time of waiting, but that helps us to resist the grumbling and complaining that we are all prone to do when we're going through hardship. To focus instead on the many ways that you've been blessed, blessed far beyond what you actually deserve, if you think about it. So listen, we have to rethink and redefine what it means to wait. Look at that list on the screen. Remind yourself often that waiting upon the Lord is not passive. It's actually a call to greater spiritual activity. Okay, back to our text. Look at verse 9 now. Let's look at this metaphor that Jesus uses in verse 9. This is his call to make the most of your time. Jesus answered to the disciples, right? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anybody walks in the day, he doesn't stumble. Because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now Jesus has used this word picture before. Back in chapter 9, remember, he and his disciples are walking along and they're in Jerusalem and they come across this man who was born blind. And Jesus stops at that moment to heal this man and he explains to his friends. Remember, he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as long as it's daytime, he said, I have to be about the work that the Father has given me. And he goes on to heal this man. Because when night comes, my work is going to cease. But while the sun is shining, while it's day, while these 12 hours are in process, I have to be doing kingdom work. So the disciples understand what he's saying here. Remember, their thing was, Jesus, why would you go back to Judea? It's way too dangerous. And Jesus says, listen, it's still daytime. That's why. That's why I'm going back. It's still daytime. There's still 12 hours in this day. It's still daytime. And while the light is present, I have to keep working. And I'm going to Bethany to wake Lazarus up. Now there's an application for the disciples here as well. While they still see the light of this world with them in the person of Jesus, they have no reason to fear. They have no reason to fear. They're not going to stumble. They're not going to be harmed because God, remember, is the, God is the great chess player on the board. He is orchestrating all of these events. It's going to the cross, but Jesus is sovereignly putting all of these things together, including the timing, right? So they won't stumble and they won't be harmed. Nobody is going to lay a hand on Jesus or the disciples until God's appointed time. So that means Jesus is like, look, there's no reason for us to stay out here in Perea. I know the ministry out here has been good, but let us not cower in fear. Let us go to Judea as long as it's daytime because there's work to be done. So how do we apply that same metaphor to our lives today? Well, this is the coming together of these two great principles, right? Waiting upon the Lord and then staying active and making the most of our time. Yes, those two principles can and should coexist in our lives. They can and should. So, a couple principles. Number one, you know this. Our days on the earth are numbered by God. Our days on the earth are numbered by God. And the Bible repeatedly affirms this truth, right? You'll find it most prominently in the book of Job and in the Psalms. My times are in your hand, David declares in Psalm 31. So our number of days was written long before we were born. And not one of us has the power or authority to, to outrun our death. God has numbered our days. Now, does that mean we should take crazy risks? No. Thank you. Somebody said it. <sighs> no, we should not take irrational risks. There's a, a funny story. How many of you guys know? I'm going to date myself now. J. Vernon McGee. Okay, some of you guys. All, right. All the old folks are like, oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> He once told a story, and it's always stuck in my head, about a young student of his who had spent years studying the doctrine of of sovereignty. And he was so convinced about it that one day he said to Dr. McGee, I'm so convinced that God has ordained my days that I could step out into the midst of the busiest traffic in this city, and if my time has not come, I would be perfectly safe. And Dr. McGee replied, Brother, if you step out into the midst of traffic here, your time has come. So those principles fit together, don't they? We don't take crazy risks. J.C. Ryle talked about not presuming upon God. He said, let us, by way of caution, make sure that our dangers meet us in the path of duty and that we do not go out of our way to seek them. Even J.C. Ryle agreed with that. And we see this lived out. We just saw this in John chapter 10 and 11, right? First, we see Jesus wisely recognizing that these guys want to stone me to death, so he retreats to Perea. That was a wise thing to do. But now he becomes aware that God wants him to return to Judea. So with all confidence, he obeys God's will. We see this in the life of Paul, right? There were times when, you know, he took crazy risks, right? Things where you're like, wow, that's really risky. And other times when he escaped out of really bad situations. And so the key for us is to be wise in our choices, to seek the Lord's will, to balance these two things, trusting God with being prudent and sensible. It's not easy, right? There's no black and white answers, but we always go to the Lord for wisdom in those things. But God has numbered our days. Number two, there is enough time for everything to get done. There is enough time. We see this principle represented in Jesus' metaphor. God has given us these these 12 hours of daylight to accomplish all the things that he set out for us to do. And it is precisely enough time for us to get them done because God has decreed it to be so. And we see this principle fleshed out in Ephesians 2.10. Recommend that that you look at this verse, that you, you memorize it, that you put it on your mirror, tape it to your mirror, whatever. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. His sovereignty makes it possible. Not one of us will pass from this earth until God has accomplished exactly what he wants to accomplish through us. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. We know this verse, right? So there is enough time. Therefore, principle number three, and this is huge. Since we only have that much time, it must not be wasted. This is the alarm clock, the alarm bell or whatever for Christians in the modern era. Because we tend to take our faith very, very casually. But look at Scripture. We're not to waste the time. I know there's a lot of things to distract us, a lot of things that we can waste our time with. We're not to waste our time. Teach us to number our days, Psalm 90 says, so that we may present to you, Lord, a heart of wisdom. Listen, don't presume upon God that you'll have a tomorrow to accomplish the works of God. Don't presume. For tonight your life may be required of you. So while it's still daytime, take stock of the time that God's given you and get to work. That is what it means to employ a heart of wisdom, to be about God's work. Listen, as Christians, our goal in life is not to live a long life. That may be surprising. That's not the goal, to live a long life here on the earth. It's not a goal to live a comfortable life. Our goal is to live a life that has an eternal impact. That's the goal. The culture lies to us about this. I grew up in this. as As an unbeliever for the first quarter of my life, I grew up with this lie. The world told me this is about achieving. Life is about achieving and then accumulating and then someday retiring to enjoy it all. That was the story. And I bought it completely until Jesus turned me around. Scripture exhorts us to do something different. To seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness all of our days. All of our days, from day one to the very last day. To seek first his kingdom. Not personal pleasure or comfort. And if you're faithful in that, God promises, if you'll seek his kingdom, he'll add all the necessary stuff to you. Right? That's the promise of provision and supply. So we're called to steward whatever amount of time God gives us. And to steward all of the gifts and abilities and resources that he's given to us for his glory for his mission on earth not for our personal comfort and that's hard that's hard for americans the way we live the priorities that we set for our lives it's to be different than the world we're to be peculiar in this sense the priorities that we set for ourselves and if that's not true of you right now let this be a wake-up call number your days for god's glory every single one of them Okay, let's go back to the text. Look at verses 14 and 15. What we're going to see here is more about the purpose that Jesus had in this delay in going to Bethany. Verse 14, so Jesus said to them plainly, his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Key phrase there is for your sakes. So don't misunderstand Jesus here. He wasn't glad that Lazarus had to go through this painful process of sickness and death. He wasn't glad for that. He wasn't glad that Mary and Martha had to go through this brutal suffering of watching their brother's health slip away and then watching him die. But Jesus does rejoice over the greatest purpose, the greater purpose in all that suffering. That's what you need to see. Jesus is not not glad. He doesn't rejoice when we have to go through pain and suffer, but he does rejoice in the greater purposes that he brings out of it that's what we've got to grasp here and this is the purpose that goes back to verse 4 in this chapter when jesus said this sickness of lazarus is for the glory of god so that the glory of the son may be revealed and again as hard as this is for us the motivation behind the delay is love even though even though the family couldn't see it at the time it's still love because in the ultimate sense love is doing whatever is necessary For people to see and to know and experience the glory of God. That is the highest form of love. Anything that leads to that is the priority. Now you may ask, well, why? Why is that more loving than healing somebody of a sickness or providing comfort to a grieving family member? Because the glory of God is eternal. The scripture says that our suffering in the flesh during these days on the earth is momentary and light. I know it doesn't feel that way all the time, but it's light momentary affliction compared to the great glory of eternal glory living with God. So there's a distinction here, right? We got to make sure we see this difference because it really is the key to bearing up under trials is to know that this is momentary and light, but man, what's to come is so weighty and so wonderful. So, Jesus is not, in Jesus not coming to Bethany in time, it was by sovereign design. And in the end, it was for their sake, he says, for the disciples' sake, for Mary and Martha's sake, even for Lazarus' sake, for their benefit. And by the way, the benefit of everybody who's going to be there that day who witnesses the resurrection, for their benefit. Jesus says it right here in verse 15 so that you may believe. Where have we heard that before? Right? It's the name of the entire preaching series we're doing. So that you may believe. Now, the emphasis in that is not first-time belief because these folks are already followers of Jesus. This is about having a deeper belief. Okay? So, Christian, listen. So that you may believe is not first-time belief, always. It's often deeper belief. Jesus knew that delaying his arrival would cause Mary and Martha and Lazarus to deepen their trust in him. That was worth the pain. That was worth the suffering. That's hard. Yes, it was better for them to wait through all those anxious hours for God to fully complete the work that He planned to do. And that tells us that Romans 8.28 is always true, always in all circumstances, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do we really believe that verse or is that just like one of those christian things that flows off our tongue? That even in suffering and pain and waiting, God works all things together for our good. That's, that's an issue to settle in your heart today. So make it really personal now. Okay, these are, great, these are great lessons on paper. Make it personal. God comes to you and says, hey, I know you are suffering. I see your suffering, but I'm glad. I'm glad for your sake that I didn't respond to your request to get you out of that pain. Could you accept that? I I saw that it was hard. I know it was. But I'm glad that I didn't take you out of that, that trial. Could you accept that? I think this is a true statement. If you and I were, let's say God came down and said, you know what, I'm going to let you pick your path through life. <laughs> you design, custom design it. We would make it super easy and super comf- comfy from day one to the end, right? Just a straight path, everything going well. That's what we would do. And we'd never learn the lessons we need to learn. You know, do you know what kind of a person you turn out to be? But Yeah, selfish and prideful and entitled and uncaring and every other form of sin. And worst of all, you'd short-circuit everything that God wants to do to transform your heart. So we need difficulty and we need trials in our lives. As with Mary and Martha, God wants to grow us deeper in our faith. God wants us to have a softer heart. He wants us to have a more vibrant sense of thankfulness and joy. He wants us to grow in humility. He wants us to have a greater empathy for other people. He wants to grow us in perseverance and character and hope. Here's the thing. And all of those things are grown only in the lab of suffering and trials. So regardless of how we feel about it and how hard it can be, it is God's love at the base of it all. That's one of the great things that pops off this page. In this chapter, it is God's love at the base of it. And still his promise remains, weeping may last through the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That's true as well. It's a heavy story. And we haven't even gotten to the resurrection part. But let me, a, a quick caution before I leave this subject. These principles of suffering are incredibly important to apply in our lives personally, but not everybody is ready to hear them and certainly not at times of crisis and pain. So be careful how you communicate them. Even this morning, I'm trying to be very careful because I know there are people that are here this morning, they're going through very intense suffering. So I want to be careful about this. If you are ever thrust into a situation where a brother or sister in Christ is in deep pain, is in grieving, or is distraught over loss, we don't lead with trite sayings. Right? We don't lead with even God causes all things to work together for good. Not in that moment. There will be a time for that in the future to put those pieces together for your friend. But in that moment, what do we do? We listen well and we enter into that pain with empathy and we, we pray with them for God's surpassing peace in the midst of that. Remember, Jesus was only able to be glad because he was God, because <laughs> he knew the outcome. We don't have that vision. So when these things happen, we've got to be careful and empathetic and prayerful. The time will come when you want to come alongside that friend and help him or her put those pieces together to say, this is actually good for you. I know it was hard at the time, but God is working in this. But just be cautious in the way you wield that. Amen? All right, I'll wrap up with one of my favorite biblical metaphors. I'll close with this because it's so good for this topic. It comes from James chapter 5. I'm not a farmer, but this, this still strikes me as interesting. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The fact is, guys, a person who struggles with waiting will never make it in farming. They're just not going to make it. Because the farmer has to wait for everything, right? First for the season to arrive, and then hopefully enough rain comes, and that's When you look at the history of the ancient Near East, everything depended on the rain, right? That was survival. And if the rain was sufficient, then there was the waiting on the development of the crop itself, right? From the seed to the sprout, to the plant, to the fruit, and then finally to the harvest. Here's the key. The farmer cannot fight against that process. He cannot fight against that process. He can't shake his fist at God and get frustrated about it. There are seasons of hope and growth in farming And also seasons when you're just waiting and it feels like nothing is happening. But here's the thing. Is the farmer lazy? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's up early. He works late. He's not watching Netflix. He's not playing video games. The farmer has a lot of work to do even as he waits for that crop. Ultimately, he knows he's not in control of the results. Now, now we just go to the supermarket. Right, and the food shows up. But for the ancient Near East, he understood, I'm not in control of this. He, he had to rely upon God more than we have to. He's only a steward. He does his best, he fulfills his role, and then he waits on God for the supply. Could anybody here this morning benefit from adopting that mindset to your life? Can those two concepts coexist? Waiting on the Lord and making the most of your time. They should. So, what are you waiting for these days? What's the thing? Like, from the very beginning of this sermon, you had something in your mind. What are you waiting on right now? Is it a college degree? Or a future spouse? Or a new job? Or better health? Whatever it might be. Key question, how well are you waiting? And how well are you working in the meantime? How well are you waiting and how well are you working in the meantime? Has your waiting produced in you a faith that is stronger or weaker? Are you getting stronger or weaker in your trust in God? Has the manner of your waiting drawn you closer to God or do you find yourself drifting further from Him while you wait? Has your approach to waiting helped remind you of all the blessings you've been given? Or, Has it tempted you to do nothing but grumble and complain? Has the way you've waited enabled you to reach out and minister to others? Or has it drawn you deeper into a sense of self-centeredness and self-pity? Those are the big questions, aren't they? How we respond to it. We're all going to go through periods of, of difficulty. We're all going to go through periods of waiting. How well do you wait and how well do you work? Let's put away the question, why is this happening to me? And let's put on the question, what can I learn and how might God be more glorified through me in this trial? Remember, waiting is not just about what we get at the end of the wait. It's about who we become in the process of waiting. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, as hard as it is this morning as we sit here, and I know everybody in this audience has a different situation is facing different things, Lord. This is hard for us. And so I pray that you will give us greater patience. I pray that you will help us to see things that maybe we're not aware of right now, Lord. Whether that's speaking through your word or speaking through a fellow believer, to encourage us, Lord, to trust in your timing in all things. And Lord, while we wait to help us to to say, I'm not going to go into self-pity. No, I am going to get up and I'm going to be spiritually active. I am going to seek your word more than ever. I am going to study who you are. I'm going to go deeper into my own heart. I'm going to put away sin in my life. I'm going to serve others. In the midst of my, my trial and difficulty, I'm going to lift others up. Father, help us to have a bigger vision for what you're doing in our lives. Help us, Lord, to turn around our minds and our hearts if we are stuck right now in a place of self-pity. <clears throat> Thank you for this great story that you've given us that helps us to see these truths. May, may they change the way we think even this week. Again, for our good and for your glory. Amen.